0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's show features my interview with Paula P., a woman who squeezed an amazing amount of alcoholic destruction into the years between her first drink at 14 and the day she ultimately got sober at 17. Some 42 years later, she recounts the story of her dysfunctional family with a violent father, alcoholic mother, and siblings, all of whom struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction. Her own nasty behavior surfaced early, as she became the class bully and was always in trouble. Of course, she was drinking all the time. At 14, she was up in front of the juvenile court, who sentenced her to AA meetings, none of which had any effect on her. Though her mother got sober in AA and frequently had fellowship friends over to attempt multiple interventions on Paula, her drinking and drug use escalated. So did the consequences. She was in and out of countless juvenile detention centers and group homes. After she tried to kill her mother, her custody was finally turned over to the state. She was facing serious adult prison time as she approached her 18th birthday. Fortunately, The concentrated misery she had crammed into three years culminated into a moment of clarity, and she finally got sober in AA in 1979. As similar as Paula's story is to others in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series, it still contains elements very few people ever survive, much less speak about in an AA meeting. As such, much of her service work, in addition to sponsoring many women over the years, includes speaking at AA conferences and other gatherings. She has also modeled incredible bravery and courage to other AA women by blowing the whistle on inappropriate predatory and misogynistic behavior from men at some of the AA meetings she attended. Though she experienced significant blowback from some members, her work still centers on illuminating this somewhat rare but real dark side of the program. It became her personal mission to help keep AA a safe and secure place for women to gather and recover. As you tune into Paula's story, I think you'll find much to relate to. It's a stark yet reassuring tale of continuing power of the program to change people's lives. Though she's been sober for many years, her story resonates both fresh and vital in the continuing narrative of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, I invite you to become enraptured in the next hour or so with my friend and AA sister, Paula P. Hi, my name is Paula
1: and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Paula. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me this morning. Sure. Now, you and I met in a meeting in London, and I had never met you before. This may be the first time we're actually talking to each other in any kind of extended conversation. But you were brought in as a speaker for that meeting, and I was so impressed with your enthusiasm and everything you had to say about the way you worked your program. I thought, I need to have Paula on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. So this is a real treat and honor for me to have you here today. day. I
1: think it's a treat and honor for me, too.
0: So as I recall, you've been sober.
1: 42 years.
0: 42 years. I think you have the same amount of time that one of my other guests from that particular meeting, Margie D, has, I think she just turned 42, several other people from that meeting as well. What was your sobriety date?
1: October 29th, 1979.
0: Seems like a long time ago.
1: Yes, it does. (laughs) Free cell (laughs) phone, yes.
0: Yeah, I remember what that was like. We're in that transitional generation, aren't we, where we can remember times that had phone books and landlines and... Yeah. Now we have cell phones and phone books are a thing of the past. So what was going on back in, in the fall of 79 that made you turn to or run to or crawl into AA?
1: So um, I had been court mandated to go to AA meetings since I was 14 years old, starting in 1976 in the middle of Nebraska. And, you know, of course I didn't want to go, of course I wasn't ever all the way sober at any of those meetings I was, you know, court mandated to go to, but Uh they treated me so kindly. Mm. And I don't remember a word, Not in three years of meetings, I don't remember one word that was said, but I remembered how they made me feel and it's not like I turned 17 years old in 1979 and said, you know, I'm really going to try it this time. No, I was a ward of the state. I was starting to age out of the uh, juvenile system up into Mm -hmm. the adult legal system and God and AA interfered in my life without my permission. And I got sent to a, uh, you know, broke my probation again. And, and it got sent to a long-term facility from there into another facility from there into another facility. And, So I just got to see, I mean, just the practicality of you can be alive and not drink all at the same time. It never occurred to me before. And I could see that people who didn't drink could be happy. And I didn't know that either.
0: Yeah, that's such a powerful realization, especially to come to it at such a young age. So you were 14 and court mandated. That's not something you think of very often when you think about 14-year-old children or adolescents, let's say. So you were court ordered at fourteen. What was going on in your life up to fourteen that had a judge senten- sentencing you to go to AA meetings?
1: Well, uh, I took my first drink when I was fourteen, so it went downhill pretty fast. <laughs> oh, no.
0: Very yeah, fast. Very huh?
1: fast. Um, <laughs> what really had happened so my mother had been you know, a rough alcoholic as I was growing up and that obviously that didn't cause my alcoholism. No one uh-huh. Cause your alcoholism, but why I even bring that into it? Is so my I was the youngest of five kiddos, in her alcoholism, mm-hmm. and then she finally got sober, and I was still at home. I was the only kid mm. still at home, and she wanted to try to make good. You know, you know that onus, sure. that, that weight, you know, on a parent, you know. And so I fell in love with alcohol, and uh, she was sober for the first time for a kid in my position, and uh, she wanted me yeah. to live, and so she did everything she could. Uh, To have me live and I was just insane with the need for alcohol and uh, so she turned custody of me over to the state so I was a ward of the state and um, you know I just kept breaking probation and you know get arrested and in institutions
0: let me see if i get this straight things are a little bit turned around for me here so your mom you're one of you said four children
1: five i'm the youngest.
0: five children you're the youngest your mother is an alcoholic everybody else your siblings are out of the house by the time that you're 14. your mother gets sober right about that time Mm -hmm. Was it an AA that she got it sober? It is an
1: AA, yes.
0: Okay, so she gets sober, but then that's when you start drinking and start having all the repercussions from being uh, early blossoming alcoholic. <laughs> yes. How did it turn out that you started drinking about the time your mother stopped? Yeah,
1: it wasn't on purpose. Let me tell you, if I could have planned that, it wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have planned it that way because all my other four yeah. siblings got away with. Everything, you know, they went mm-hmm. wild, and my mom was drunk. So who, you know, who cares? And but the weird thing is that I had hated alcohol because I saw, I smelled, you know, I saw what yeah. it did to us and the mm-hmm. people my mom led in our home and all that. And and the day before I took my first drink, I I, I I promise you, I'd have passed a lie detector test if someone had put my hand in that machine and said, "Will you ever drink?" No, no and then that next day you know I was with some friends they were with some cute guys they handed me a bottle of booze and I took that that drank that bottle down a second bottle a third bottle and 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 the first Mm. drink man I I lit up I wasn't being alive to drink I was drinking to be alive I I didn't even I wanted to not be alive I mean that was a great outcome for me but then I found booze man and you know I could live for that Mm. and and my mom you know wanted like I said you know man the Shame yeah. and all that of, of a parent who brought their kiddo through and but I fell in love with alcohol.
0: So you were brought up in this home with this alcoholic mother and you get to the age of fourteen when all this acting out starts. I guess when you were a much younger kid, things were really rough in the house. Yeah, huh?
1: it was a rough place. Yeah.
0: How about your dad? What was he up to at that point?
1: My father was uh, uh, very rich, very powerful, Mm. very influential. He had been raised by two horrible alcoholics. And he was not Mm -hmm. an alcoholic, but he was obviously damaged and angry and brilliant. And he had left. My mom had kicked him out. And it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. He was a violent man. And and so, you know, when he left, he took his money and, and all that. And
0: how old were you when that happened?
1: Uh, I was six when she kicked she him out for the last time and he stayed away. I mean, for a long time, I had hate about my mother and resentment about my mother and the things she let mm-hmm. go down. But I, I mean, I'm telling you, she, uh, she had to deal with a monster, you know, she had to deal with a powerful monster. And, uh, you know, what would that do to somebody in her shoes, drunk, you know, and broken? Maybe I'd have done the same. You know.
0: That must have been really tough as a kid to have to go through that at age six. I guess at that time, the, the mothers were taking the kids in most cases, correct?
1: Yeah. I was still in better hands with my mother than I would have been with my father.
0: OK, so he was abusive and yet he came from a family of alcoholics, though he himself was not one. So it skipped his generation and hit you squarely how about your other four siblings were they involved in alcohol and drugs along the way
1: yeah my brother drug addict alcoholic one of my older sisters drug addict alcoholic and then you know i have to say my oldest sister loves prescription medicine a little too Mm -hmm. well
0: she in recovery
1: she is not she um you know god bless her she uh yeah, I, I, I do wonder about the I mean, I was born an extrovert. I was born looking for best friends in every room, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think oddly that served me well. And, and the fact that I got to come into AA and be re raised, you know, at 17 and, and my siblings mm-hmm. didn't get to have that. And, you know, my oldest sibling took the brunt of my dad and my mom and I remember one of my first memories, I was four years old. I shared a room with her and she was 14 and I walked in and I saw her slashing her wrists. And, you know, so any damage that she went on because she wasn't lucky enough to get recovery, you know, that's the plate she had.
0: Yeah, I get that. I had an, an older brother who's eight years older than I, who he went to Vietnam to escape the abuse in the family, if you can believe that, in 1967, 68, uh, things were better in Vietnam than they were at home. So that gives you an idea. But he had attempted suicide on a couple of occasions. It was very difficult. But interestingly, by the time they got to me, and I was the third of four, most of the severe, severe abuse had already been on my brother and my older sister. But I still got a big share of it as well. Were you, were you, did you get any of that? Physical or verbal abuse when you were a
1: kid? Yeah, I did, but it's exactly the same. Um, My older sister, my brother, and then another of my older sisters got the whole Mm -hmm. brunt. And myself, and then one of my other sisters hardly, hardly got any at all. Mm -hmm. To this day, we don't know why. So I'm the youngest of five, like I said. And my mom had told me once that I'm the only child of my father's children that he ever even picked up. So mm. I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't
0: know. That's tough. Those are tough memories to have, too. Mm-hmm. They offer some clarity along the way, but they're still it's still difficult to think about having to look back at that, not wishing to shut the door on it. Mm-hmm. Your dad leaves. You get the rest of your upbringing from your mom alone. Your siblings are growing up. They're starting to leave home. Uh, things were sufficiently traumatic for you, I guess, that uh By the time you got to that drink at 14, you must have felt a great deal of relief.
1: Oh, my God. I didn't know there was such magic in the world. I remember that very night being a little resentful that no one had told me such a thing.
0: What, what kind of what kind of kid were you in school? Were, were, were the things at home affecting you?
1: Absolutely. They were. Um, we were all five of us were super smart. Like we all started kindergarten early. But our social mm-hmm. skills, I got to start kindergarten when I was four. But I almost wow. got held back in kindergarten because my social skills were so immature. Most of us were always in fights or always. Me, mm-hmm. yeah, I was a, I was a horrible bully. I was never that big, so I couldn't back it up. But,
0: <laughs>
1: I <cried. laughs> and I mean, I was, you know, living out the, you know, making other people hurt so I could try to feel better. And you know, back then, this is the '70s, you know, '60s, right. and you know, there weren't names for learning disabilities and everything. And I have a, a math learning disability that's pretty marked. I I cannot function past a third grade level of math. I I, I just, my brain doesn't wire that way. Mm-hmm. My dad made smart kiddos, but I had this thing that I thought I'm dumb. I can't get this. What's the matter?
0: So you were the mean girl around school. Absolutely. Taking out all the feelings from home, Absolutely. trying to find place to land there. Mm-hmm. So you started drinking with friends. Was this a crowd that you ran around with? I was in
1: high school. It was a girlfriend of mine that I'd been in middle school with. And um, Mm -hmm. she had older uncles, you know, we were 14, they were 22, you know, it seemed so exotic. And, you know, so they could buy us booze. And so that's where, that's where I took my first drinks.
0: So what was the thing that got you in trouble with the law after you started drinking?
1: Well, all of a sudden, there were rules at my house. There hadn't been rules, like be home, like none of that. Sleep at home, you know, tell people where you are. All of a sudden, rules new to me. And I was just so angry, you know, like, how dare she tell me now to eat dinner with a fork? How dare she tell me to be home at a certain time? And so my rage and my need to drink overtook everything.
0: Uh Uh-huh, I see. So what happens?
1: Well, I don't come home. I run away. I beat her up. I I tried to kill her with a homemade flamethrower in her first year of sobriety, you know, and, you know, lots of screaming, lots of throwing stuff, lots of running away, lots of being out all night. I started skipping school, not doing any kind of schoolwork, not caring, hanging Mm -hmm. around Mm dice people, um, mm-hmm. lying about where I was, she'd catch me in the lodge, you know, all the things juvenile alcoholics do.
0: <laughs> okay. So you were becoming not only an alcoholic, but I, I guess a, for lack of better term, juvenile delinquent.
1: Absolutely. A hundred percent.
0: What was going on when you drank? Did you get just wilder and angrier or did you mellow out? What What, what was the overall effects of drinking at that age?
1: It made me feel without abandon. It made me feel like I didn't have to worry about the shape of my eyebrows, how I breathed, if my mouth was slightly Mm. open or closed, the shape of my shoulders, the look of my face. I got to be abandoned and it felt like joy. It wasn't joy. It was cruelty and irresponsibility and mania. To me, that looked like what joy might look
0: like. Yeah. So it's kind of perverse kind of joy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When you're when you're looking at that impact and getting angry or, or more violent, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of behavior. How long did it take for that behavior to lead to real consequences?
1: Second night of drinking. <laughs> Second night. No, first night. First night. I stayed out all night. First night. I stayed first out night. all night and didn't tell her. I came to the next morning after my first drink in a gutter.
0: Oh, so my I got, God. <laughs> really?
1: Really? That's like you think of us, you know, trench coat homeless guys in a gutter, in a at gutter over my eyes. And my first thought, at
0: 14, hey.
1: and my first thought was, that was great. Oh. Yeah.
0: Did you remember anything about the night before? Was was that your first blackout?
1: No. And you know what? I never had a blackout. I think it ain't God interfered in time because I had just found finally a way to drink and not throw up. Mm-hmm. Finally found a way.
0: <laughs> so your first, your first night, you're falling down, laying in the gutter, uh, drunk. And the second yeah. night, I guess you couldn't wait to do it again.
1: I couldn't wait to do it again.
0: So here you are, 14 years old, and your first drink, your second drink. This this is really progressing at this point. When did you? When were you in front of the judge? What happened?
1: So I got a letter at home. I was 15, maybe. You know, this whole mm-hmm. legal document for the state of Nebraska that now. My mother is no longer my guardian. The state of Nebraska is my guardian. This is the name of my court of court and attorney. My court date is this and this to finalize, you know, whatever. Then I just started going and getting arrested for, you know, being at a party where there was beer, getting arrested, first skipping school too many times, mm-hmm. getting arrested because I was now under different mandates. Mm-hmm. And so I got sent up to this group home when I was 15, and that was my first sort of incarceration.
0: So this was something that your mother... Initiated on her end of things to turn she you did. over to the state.
1: She did. Yeah. She,
0: was it that she had just run out of options or patience or things superior enough with you that that's the only option she had?
1: I think it was a couple answers. I think one, when I tried to kill her, I think it sh- shocked her to there's real danger right. here. This just isn't, you know, my daughter breaking some rules. There's some real yeah. danger to uh-huh. her uh, that she was desperate for me to be made good, desperate in her own way. She needed to make good on me to kind of clean out all the guilt.
0: That's different than the way it is today from the standpoint that, you know, when parents uncover that kind of behavior in their kids, they're taking them off to see psychologists or psychiatrists. The kids are getting medicated with whatever ADHD, whatever it is that they got bipolar. Um, but it sounds to me like that was still during the still during the time when where parents, if they ran out of options or the kids were really in bad shape, they would just turn them over to the state, I guess. Huh?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't remember my town. I, you know, in the group home I got sent to, you know, that's what had happened to everybody mm. Every, or they'd gotten in so much trouble legally that the state intervened in that and going to that group home was just like punishment.
0: Was when you were in the juvenile detention facility that you were in there, was that the first time you went to AA?
1: No, because when I was 14, they had to go to court. That's when I was mandated to go to AA meetings for about a year.
0: So what was your experience during that year? You mentioned earlier that you don't remember anything that was said. Were, were you sitting there completely mm-hmm. disinterested or did you hear... Do you remember it having any impact on you whatsoever?
1: So from the time I was 14 to 17, I had to go to AA meetings till I finally got Uh sober at 17. I remember people who my mom knew well because, you know, they would come to our house and do AA things, you know, who I knew knew what I had done to her. And I was ready for the fight because now I had to be in the same rooms with those people. And I remember I can see it right now, the looks of kindness and welcome on their faces. I remember, you know how, um, unlike those window shades thing, it's the 12 steps and 12 traditions, you uh-huh. know, every meeting has, I remember reading the first four proposals, yeah. <laughs> interesting, <laughs> and um, reading one, which meant not drinking. And and I remember looking at it and saying to myself, I can't ever do that. And it wasn't like, I'm so cool. I'll never do that. It was like, that's not possible. Mm. I can't. Mm. And then the other were about God, I hated mm. God. Hated God or thought there was proof there wasn't one. And then four was about telling my secrets. It's like one, two, three, four. This too is no place for me.
0: So there you are sitting in AA. You feel like you can't do the first step. And then you see God in the second step and you're completely turned off by it?
1: Absolutely. No way.
0: So did that happen early in your experience in AA and and that followed you through those three years?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I'm curious, did anybody ever sit down with you and talk about that or did you have a sponsor? What was was that like?
1: No, I never had a sponsor because I never wanted to be there. I never even talked in the meetings, but... My mother, almost uh-huh. every Friday afternoon of much of my drinking when I wasn't incarcerated somewhere had a 12 step call set up for me. So I'd pull up, come home from school, there'd be some unusual car in the driveway on a Friday afternoon, I knew it was yet oh, another 12 step call. <laughs> I'd walk in. And then I was also court mandated, this is like abuse. To, so on every New Year's Eve of my entire drinking, I was court mandated to go oh, to the wow. AA <laughs> dance.
0: So,
1: <laughs> where there was this, Speaker.
0: Blech. Oh, geez. I've never heard of anybody being court mandated to go to a dance. My probation officer <laughs> was in AA. So what was the turning point at 17? What happened at 17 that that was the uh, the tipping point for you?
1: So um, I'm alcoholic and drug addict, though I don't sure. say that uh-huh. in AA meetings, you know, but it's the truth. So my mother had found some small packaged items for sale mm-hmm. in my bedroom. And had turned them over to my probation officer, which is a federal offense. And um, what they told me they were going to do with that federal offense is we're going to wait to charge you on this. We're going to see if you do one more thing. Hmm. You do one more thing. You're you're coming up on 18. We're going to place it on you then. And you're going to big girls prison. No more juvenile Hmm. facilities for you. Mm -hmm. So that not enough to make me like, oh, my God, I'll get sober. But there was that on me. So then when I was 17, that charge Hmm. was still hanging over me. You know, it was obvious to see I wasn't going to school. They would just call. She at school today? No. Yeah. So, it was, which were all mm-hmm. mandates of my probation. So I was mm-hmm. breaking probation again, and I got pulled up in front of my probation officer on October 29th. And uh, they'd said, "We know you're breaking probation. We know you're still drinking. Um, we're we're going to press that federal charge on you. But the, here's your chance. You can go to jail until sentencing, which was automatic. Yeah. Big girls prison." or hmm. you can go to treatment. So I sat there for 20 minutes, trying to decide which one to do. Isn't that insane? The first panic thoughts were, what's a lie I haven't told yet?
0: Hmm. And I couldn't
1: find one, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't think of one. And then the rest 19 minutes, I swear to God, because I knew treatment meant hmm. you don't get to drink. And the next 19 minutes was this, Fuzzy, stunned, trying to think how to be alive and not mm. drink. I, there was no third option. I didn't have a third, you know, way to think mm. through, get out of that. And the thing about getting sent up is, I was institutional. I was an institutionalized juvenile. It wasn't that unusual. I didn't love it,
0: but you were used to it. You had experience with it
1: wasn't that unusual. You were
0: just taking a step up or down.
1: Yeah. So the first facility that I got, I got sent to for lasted five or six months, like I said, when I was 15, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I was 15. It was the things I'm about to say are going to sound horrible. And yes, I guess they're horrible. But it got me yeah. out of my mother's house where I had an abusive brother mm-hmm. who lived there still, who can't try mm-hmm. to get into me at all times. And my mother just turned her face. And so me being in that facility may be the first taste of freedom I ever had. I was 15 years old and I was the head of kitchen, it was called, and 15 people lived in the house. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, I was in charge of shopping and cooking Mm -hmm. for 15 people. One time, um, me and my assistant who was 14, we made the chicken and it was raw and our counselor put a plate of raw chicken in front of us and said, eat it. And then if we overslept, there was a counselor who would put a, you know, cookie sheet water on a cookie sheet and put it in the freezer and then throw it on us to wake us up.
0: Rude awakening, rude awakening. And
1: it, yeah. And we would clean and if, and then they'd come in with a um, white thing to see if we left any dust, if we left any dust or anything that wasn't clean, they would do what's called turnover the room. So like couches upside oh, down, man. curtains down. I mean, trash. We had to go in and then re-clean. And I know this sounds abusive. I know it sounds awful, but I never, it was my, I felt happy. I was happy. There were people and rules and no monsters, no monsters.
0: Yeah, I had that kind of behavior at home though. My dad would do that. He'd turn over. So I I was never happy about it, but I can imagine it it at least gave you a sense of somebody's somebody's noticing what I'm doing, even if it's not as good as I could do or even bad. So you went to AA for those three years. It really didn't take, you're, you're 17. You have this choice that you struggle with, and you took door A, their treatment.
1: I said, okay, I'll go to treatment.
0: So what did that look like in 1979?
1: Uh, the luck of the draw is how that looked. So I was in Nebraska where I did all my drinking. Three and a half hours away yeah. is Sioux City, Iowa. Sioux City, Iowa, who the heck knows why, had one of the first treatment centers, residential treatment centers in the nation, had one of the first halfway houses in the nation, had one of the first juvenile treatment centers in the nation. And my probation officer Hmm. just happened to know about it. So I thought I'd go to treatment for 20 days, like everybody Mm -hmm. else I knew had to go. Mine was three and a half months for just juveniles.
0: So you got to go to one of the first... Treatment centers for juveniles. Did it have immediate impact on you, or did it work on you slowly? What was your experience during that those three and a half months?
1: It was slowly. How I'd always survive is manipulate. I was a pretty good manipulator, and so that's which I didn't even know was manipulating. It was just Mm -hmm. the same as breathing. It was being alive. Same. I couldn't discern. Oh, I'm manipulating. Mm -hmm. It was just be alive. So I went into it. It was just another institution to me. That's all. It wasn't, you know. But I do, my poor mother, I was coming off an overdose, actually. My poor mother had to drive me there in the rain. And as much as I knew about AA, I mean, my mom had had my house full of AA people Mm -hmm. for, you know, those two or three years. I still remember being pulled up to that door and thinking, good, they'll teach me how to drink. Okay. (laughs) I know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it would have been really ironic if they did too wouldn't it <laughs> yeah oh my gosh so did you have to detox when you got there i
1: should have detoxed and i didn't mm. i should have but my mother didn't know i was i was i had overdosed i'd um stayed in the back bedroom uh she I was you know sick as hell mm. thought i was gonna die but she came in she said you sure this isn't you sure this is the flu? You sure this is the flu? This isn't yeah, something else, yeah. meaning, you know, drugs, alcohol. And knowing I was dying, knowing I'd taken in more than I could sweat out, wow. I said, no, Mosh it's the flu. I know, but I live, man. Brain damage, but live.
0: Brain damage, yeah. And I, I think most of us are from from alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. And the realization that that you're not going to be taught how to drink, what was it like for you those first few weeks or months without being able to drink? Did you go through withdrawals or what, what was your experience?
1: You know, I didn't, I, um, so I'd come up to so that, that overdose had, you know, wiped me out. So I was physically wiped out, yeah. which I think is a gift because my mm-hmm. mind wasn't working fast enough to try to find the angles, to try to, you know, plot the runaway course, to try to find the source for any, you know, Alcohol uh-huh. or drugs to get in, uh, and so I just pretty much shuffled, I guess, through those first long while and try to stay under the radar. That was back, man. I don't know what they do now. They yeah, can scream I'll at bet. you then, man. Stop. <laughs> and uh, it was a gift that it was so long that I had to be in there so long that that is the place actually that I could see that you could. That you could be alive and not drink, and it, it was only because I had to be there three and a half months so that I could, you know, the evidence was unassailable.
0: So a, th- a thirty or sixty day program, and you would have been right back out again. Yeah, huh? I wouldn't
1: even awake at sixty days in that place. I wouldn't have even, you know, come out of the fog yet.
0: So by the time you, by the time you're ready to be discharged, did you have a sufficient amount of I don't know if it's, it's necessarily sobriety but uh, or recovery, but did you have a sufficient amount of being dry at least for a while to have a shot at making it in AA?
1: So it gave me a sufficient amount of time to be dry.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um, because I was still a ward of the state, I was still a juvenile yeah. when I got out of there, That I got put into a foster home mm-hmm. in South Dakota. So that gave hmm. me another five months. Um, and then when I got out of there, I got put in a halfway house back in Sioux City mm. for another eight months.
0: And you hadn't drank any time during that time?
1: No, no. Here's why, man. Here is exactly why. I wasn't that afraid of being put in prison again. And though I knew my time was Maybe. up, one more thing. You know, I didn't think I could find my way around it. I knew. But it was that loneliness, man. And, and AA was all I had. I, did, I had nothing, nobody else. And I lived in AA meetings with my brain damage and my rage and my crazy. Um, and it was a sufficient substitute.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who received no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to The Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. When you went into AA, was that concurrent with your release from the first uh, place you were in? Or did that happen later after you were in South Dakota?
1: No, we had to go. People brought meetings into us. And they they would bus us to some after after you were there for a while and had attained a certain level of be trusted with something. I cannot remember how the strata worked.
0: So not all that different from the way they do it today, where the halfway houses fill up the AA meetings and mm-hmm. and then they encourage us in AA to go and bring meetings in and be, be available as the sponsors and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So when you went into AA, I'm imagining there weren't a whole lot of 17-year-olds in those rooms in those days. What What did it feel like to be one of the younger, if not youngest, person in your A.A.? I'll
1: tell you what. Here's the luck of the draw again, because uh, I got to go to Sioux City and get sober. There were a whole ton of us, a bunch of us, 16. I still, 42 years later, we're still in touch. They're still sober. We still get together. (laughs) So lucky.
0: What an alumni of people to stay in touch with.
1: Mm -hmm. So lucky.
0: That says something though about the yeah. quality of that facility and the quality of your sobriety at that time that those people, a sufficient number of them are still sober. I mean most people, when they get out of treatment, they look back years later. a lot of times the the people not only didn't make it but they no longer they didn't even survive so so you're sitting yeah. in these early mm-hmm. meetings, Bay A as a seventeen year old um When was the turning point for you when you got to the God part of the steps? did you get a sponsor right away or did, were you were you guided uh or was this all stuff that just came out of your head
1: so i i actually when i say i had brain damage i actually like i actually uh-huh. <laughs> did i would forget to put gas in my car i would food would burn you know these kinds of slower than normal so mine was of the educational variety um slowly hmm. slowly slowly Um, the veils would fall and then, and then the argument would be proven wrong. And then another veil would fall and it started so small. I mean, the first time I felt something good was I was sitting in this crook of this tree outside Sioux city in this gorgeous park that's there. And all I knew was sitting in that tree felt better. And that was the beginning of the beginning of something kind outside of myself, something better. And I was doubled down, you know, as many are on, you know, if there's a God, why do those bad things happen mm-hmm. to me? You know, that's a yeah,
0: that's you know,
1: familiar. argument or something. And I remember going to my counselor uh, in the halfway house and saying, all right, if there's a God, why do those bad things happen to me when I was a little girl. And she said, God didn't make those things happen. Faulty and broken human will made those things happen, but now God has given you alcoholics anonymous to try to help you mend those things.
0: That's such a beautiful response and so wise. It's that kind of wisdom that can really have an impact on people. So I can imagine you sitting in this tree, feeling mm-hmm. like maybe you're in the hands of a higher power, and uh, and you're getting what you need to get about God in an incremental way, but nonetheless. Uh, when did you start yeah. working the, the steps? When did you start your fourth step? And did, were you, did you have the guidance of a sponsor through all of this? What was that like for
1: you? So the, the whole thing about a sponsor, I was crazy and arrogant and insane. And, um, I thought I couldn't read the big book because it was <laughs> yeah. for you, like old drunks. Yeah, right. There's something unique yeah. and wonderful about me. Um, yeah. I couldn't get a sponsor because I honestly thought this is, that yeah. no one was as smart as me yeah, who yeah. could sponsor me with my uh-huh. you know drug damage, right? <laughs> um, so I did get a few sponsors only because they were really popular in AA and I wanted to be popular too. So in essence, uh-huh. no, no sponsor, you know, none. But my father had appeared back in my life when I was about four years sober, and he said that he would pay for me to go to undergrad. I mean, I was to the point where half the people I'd gotten sober with had not grabbed onto these concepts, had not grabbed onto a higher mm-hmm. power and had gone back out to drink. The other half who had grabbed onto these concepts mm-hmm. were happy mm-hmm. and there was evidence. I couldn't find that evidence, you know? So I was at that point of maybe, maybe, you know? So I moved back to this tiny little town in Nebraska where, you know, I fell in love with the big book, alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where I got a real sponsor and, uh, you know, read the big book.
0: So you were around for four years and didn't have a sponsor. What was it like when you were sitting in meetings, listening to people talk about their the wisdom of their sponsors and everything else? Because I waited for close to a year before I got a sponsor, and I felt really left out. How did you feel? Uh,
1: so I was crazy. I could no. rationalize anything. I would probably make fun of who their <laughs> sponsor was in my head. I would, you, you know, yes, so lovely, lovely, yes. Oh my God, oh my that was goodness. me. That was me.
0: Yes. savage. Savage. Yes. Still a bully.
1: still a bully.
0: So once you went back to Mm -hmm. Nebraska without a sponsor, had you attempted to work the steps on your own? Uh, did, Did you do any of that?
1: So in treatment, you know, they take you through it. But this wasn't out of the big book or anything, you know, it was mind stuff.
0: You're just going to meetings at that point. And yes. so what was there about going back to Nebraska that made you finally decide to dig in?
1: Well, I met this young woman who was also an undergrad and I was sober four years and she was sober two years and she'd gotten sober by coming straight to comedians mm-hmm. and grabbing the big book, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wanted what she had. And she knew I had never read the big book or the 12 by 12 and she told me later. So what she did, she asked me to sponsor her, but it was only to trick me into reading the big book. <laughs>
0: And it works. Swear that's, to
1: God, and it works. Swear to God. So
0: you're sponsorless and sponsoring someone else so that you can read the book to be able to sponsor. You know, it's almost like you were. She tricked you into sponsoring her. Your, yeah, that's kind of complicated. But I get it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes, but it worked. Work. So did she become your sponsor, or did you get another sponsor?
1: No, um, we were just super, yeah. super close for many, many years. She's still sober. You know, so I fell in love with the words. Right. And I saw a shot at freedom and people in A.A. had been honorable. There was no creepy guy wanting right. or making me feel weird, you know, so I could believe that the people in A.A. Yeah. believed what they said and I could respect them because they were acting honorably. So I saw a shot at freedom and thought I'd try.
0: You've been sober four years. You're working with this with this gal, this friend. And you start. So you worked how, once once you got your act together in A.A., back in Nebraska, how long did it take you to work the steps and really get centered in the program?
1: The next year. The next year I was through my first for, wow. real fourth step, sponsoring people uh-huh. out of the book. I was still crazy as heck. Yeah. And the first thing I did with this big book is turn it into a weapon. So nice, you know, <laughs> memorize it, quote it at people. If they said upon instead of on, they hear about it. You know, Just horrible so horrible. you found
0: you found a way to take control, didn't you?
1: Mm, something yeah,
0: I know people like that to this day I've even sponsored people like that. My belief is here we are you're at you're at forty two years sober I'm at almost thirty four We are following the instructions and the suggested program of recovery written by somebody who had been sober maybe three years when he wrote it. And when when I think about people mm-hmm. I know at three years these days, I think, how could someone with that little sobriety have written something so profound? But it was because Hi. there was additional wisdom added after that. So the 164 is absolutely crucial. We know that, right? But it's all that collective wisdom that's mm-hmm. come down through the decades since then that that's the reason I stay sober. So you've been sober uh, in AA for a very long time. What kind of things, what were what were some milestones for you during your first, let's say, years and even decades of sobriety?
1: So like I said, when I was about five years sober, I got a sponsor, fell in love for the day, Book, started working the principles of the program falteringly, defectively, but uh-huh. still making progress, coming to believe that there was a God, a good God, you know, a God that had my back. Um, I graduated undergrad Moved to Savannah, Georgia, and where my little college friend had moved to. I still went to meetings, uh, but I stopped working a program. I stopped doing any kind of daily meditative or spiritual work, and I became a sober. I I don't even know dry drunk is I guess a good way. It's one of the ways to say it, and and I I just started being in a relationship of the week, a conflict of the week. And I was uh, nine years sober, and I had nothing left to face life on life's terms with. I count my sobriety date as October 29th. I actually could have counted it two days before October 27th. So I'm nine years sober, lying in bed, can't tell my secrets how sick I still am because I'm nine years sober. (laughs) like. All
0: that. that becomes a barrier, doesn't it?
1: Oh, my God. Yes. To keep those secrets, deadly stuff. So I'm lying in bed. The last man I thought walked the face of the planet had left me. I had nothing to face life with. And um, I had nothing, mm. no spiritual condition mm-hmm. to meet that. So, I mean, I mean, out of nowhere. It's not like I was lying in bed thinking, I want to drink. I'm going to come up with an mm-hmm. excuse to drink. Yeah. I mean, no. What came to mm-hmm. my mind was, hey, you know what? For nine years I could have counted two extra days of sobriety <laughs> two days times nine years is eighteen days I could drink for eighteen God. days and it won't
0: count what a beautiful rationalization <laughs> <To this laughs> makes day, sense to me holy <laughs> God. Oh my God.
1: but here's the thing yeah. I am convinced that I'm your speaker today because I had no booze in my house I had enough of a of a, enough of the big book enough of a um, a fellowship and Alcoholics Anonymous, enough of a that's a crazy thought to know not to g- get my clothes on and go buy booze. I had enough to know at least yeah. that that was crazy and to stop the next step, you know. So I came to, yeah. well not came to, I woke up the next day, I didn't drink, you know. Um, I worked in nonprofit and I had tight relationships with many Mm -hmm. churches and synagogues just to raise money for the organization I worked for. The closest one, just only geography, was this Catholic church Uh that was less than a block away. And he's been a nice guy. He'd helped us a lot. And so I ran to him and I said, can we talk? And um, I'm telling you, I walked in that room, one woman. I left that room, a different woman, a different woman. God had entered to me in a miraculous I have no words for it, but I was a completely different woman that left that place that day. And I'm not talking in a religious way; I'm talking in a spiritual way. I it could I, I could have walked into a who know you know it doesn't matter. It was the right words and the right willingness.
0: So, so you you'd spend some time with a priest, I I would assume, while you were in that church. Yeah. Was that particular person? Were they sensitive to or? respectful of AA, uh, what was their experience? I mean, here you are, somebody who's been in AA all these years. What did they say to you that made the difference?
1: I don't even know if he knew I was in AA. I don't remember saying a word about AA. He just saw a desperate and broken woman in front of him, you know? And I told him how I was left. I, I was alone yeah, again. Yeah. What I remember he said to me is this. He says, Paula, relate to Israel. He said, time and time and time again, Israel turned her face from God. But when they seemed the furthest, that's when God mm. held them the closest. And last night, Paula, that's when God held oh. you the closest too. And I cannot tell you what it was. But that that changed everything and still.
0: And at nine years, you know, the amazing thing about that story, Paula, is that you could be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous feeling the way you were feeling the night before in that bed, sitting there with nine years, and everybody would take a look around the room and say, there's Paula with nine years, things must be going well for her, and then move on to the next person. So it, it it's really amazing to me, especially those of us who suffer with, with uh, clinical depression and other mental health um, issues, that sometimes just because a person is dry or sober doesn't mean that emotionally or mentally, or even physically that they're, they're doing all that well. So sounds to me like this was a, a wake up call within your sobriety. What was the next step after you got through that with the priest? Did you immediately go back to AA?
1: Oh, yeah, I was always going to AA. I just wasn't working a daily program. I was being a fake because I would pretend I was fine. And, and it was like this mania of if I could control your perception of me, that somehow meant I was okay.
0: As long as I look good to you, I'm good to myself. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. nine years in. Yeah. What's what's going on in the succeeding years after that?
1: I stopped doing the daily work. Faith without works is dead.
0: Yeah, that's a common refrain from people who slip. So the fact that you didn't have to slip to have felt it, and you, you got that wake-up call. So yeah. so you reengaged in AA. Did you start to, to claw your way into the middle of the herd at that point, or was it a gradual return to passion for the program or passion to, to work the steps?
1: No, it was an immediate return to passion and um, and and uh, just a re-falling in love, yeah. you know, a reawakening, really a remembering, mm-hmm. you know, remembering and and but then i added an entirely other as important aspect to my life and that was a spiritual community uh-huh. outside of aa that i that also fed my soul so i had two amazing sources
0: so you were participating in both of those sources of spiritual connectedness were you were you starting to sponsor other women and do service work associated with aa out in the community yeah
1: absolutely yeah
0: how about the crossover between the, t- the two groups? What was that like? Was there a separation uh, as sometimes people like there to be, or was there a connection between the two?
1: No, I absolutely made a separation. I couldn't go in there and, you know, talk about the name of right. it. The, and I wouldn't. And, and I don't want like people to do that mm-hmm. to this day. You know, I'm sure my friends in AA could see a change. Well, they did see a change, but that's not mm-hmm. the part that was important. You know, it was just, I uh, just fallen in love with God just God. head over heels yeah. in love with God, God and just the full knowledge that I had yeah. never been alone
0: what an astonishing realization to to have that happen and to gain the solid steadfast feeling that God is indeed in your life that's got to be a from from where you came from that sounds huge to me
1: Yeah, it's huge. But that wasn't the only lesson. I mean, that was beautiful for a long time. And I still have both spiritual Uh lives in my life today, all this time later. But I had another huge new awakening at 30 years. I mean, 30 years of
0: sobriety. What happened?
1: So I live in a town that's not that big. And so, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's a small AA community in this town. And just because it's not that big a town, I'm the woman with the most time. In another town, I'm middle of the pack. I'm a non-smoker, so I'd always gone to small, sure. you know, non-smoking meetings. And then about when I was around 30 years sober, you know, the laws changed and all meetings became non-smoking. So I started going to all the meetings, you know, the club, big, huge clubhouse meetings and where all the treatment uh-huh. center people going, you know, all these. And, and I was sponsoring a lot of women, but by doing that, I started sponsoring a oh, lot okay. more women, a lot newer uh-huh. women as well. And so I would hear their stories or hear the stories of their sponsees who had been um there were predators in our rooms who had been predators on new women for so long that the men, the old timer men, were were showing the newer men how to be a predator in AA. I mean nasty. Some of them with 30 years of sobriety would wait till these women these new women went out to drink and then get they'd go to their house and have sex with them. A normal occurrence not an unusual, and no one was saying anything because they were calling it love and tolerance of others. So now here I am, the woman with the most time, can't put my head in the sand anymore, and I didn't know it. I had one last stick, fingers crossed, one last, and that was getting the approval of people. Still, it was a need. I didn't even know it was in me. I enjoyed being popular. I enjoyed being well-liked. I enjoyed all that crap as women are being run out of AA. So I, so my sponsor lives far away. Um, my close friends live far away because I'm in a small town, though I have right. close friends in town too. But, you know, so I said to my sponsor, do I have a responsibility to say something? She goes, yeah, you do. But I knew that meant I would lose all those men who had, you know, called me sister, you No.
0: Know? Yeah, I get that.
1: And. And this, so I called GSO, they said, call my sponsor, call GSO. So I called GSO, GSO has a list. I said, what was going on? Do I have a responsibility? GSO said, the person at GSO said, hold on. Cause they had to go get the list <laughs> of things all oh, kinds of groups have done to confront yeah. predators in the meeting. So, so they're reading me this long list of at least I think like 24 things. You know, some groups kick people out because yeah. you can tell people no, you can't be here. It's it's the 12 yeah. step and the first tradition. You can't kick them out of AA if there's another meeting somewhere. Go to that one. But good. it's a
0: group conscience issue, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, it is. And I'm telling you, when I brought so I brought it up at my home group and they came at me. They came at my, my car was keyed twice in an AA parking lot during a meeting. A guy sexually assaulted me in a freaking meeting in front of all the men who had called me sister, you know, by touching a very inappropriate part of my body on purpose. I mean, men who would call me sister were now calling me other words, other names, so I brought it up to the business meeting because it's my responsibility as a mm. member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. And I did it. And and I hadn't realized though how much the need for these people's approval was mm-hmm. me. So all by myself, in up in the bedroom above me, and the light of my own circumstances, at 30 years of sobriety, I had to I had to come to the conclusion that I come into this world with God only and I'm gonna leave this world with God only. There's only one relationship that matters. That is the relationship with my higher power. And I'm going to take that God's hands and we're going to stand on the front line Mm. for however long it takes. And I'm going to act like a woman who has courage. I do not have courage, but since there's not a hero here, I'm going to just have to be.
0: That's just amazing. First, I want to say, I'm so sorry that had to happen to you, especially in AA. That's That's a terrible and tragic thing to have happen. But secondly, that if there was ever a demonstration of God working in a person's life, and directing that person to the right course of action sounds to me like like you were guided in something that was extraordinarily difficult to do, especially when we, we want to acknowledge the good in other people simply because they're sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's the old, like my, my last guest on the show, Wes, we were talking about sobering up a horse thief and thinking that that person is suddenly a you know pures driven snow and looking in their backyard and seeing all these horses with other brands on it and so <laughs> for you to be able to do that how long did it take for the dust to settle after that
1: It hasn't settled it still hasn't settled That's 12 years ago people still so then I started a new home group because that was my yeah. whole home group who turned on me and so I started a new home group of women. So the new women could come to us and I could, we could fulfill that response. And we could provide Good. at least a safe place and teach them that, no, you don't, as a matter of fact, that's not oh, a part oh, of it. Yeah. you don't have to deal with that. No, I still take hits, but the beauty is, and every hit that would come in the beginning of my, that one year that I was really dealing with it head on, hard, new, every new, um, to what somebody said about me, every new slam on my whole new home group, all these things would feel like a new knife. So I had to come to a series of these letting goes mm. that God gave me because I was my sponsors a thousand miles away my friends are two thousand miles away you know the people who had me you're new you're right Mm -hmm. you need to stay the course you're right you need to stay the course kinds of things so one of the ways that I realized is this you know so I sponsor lots of women all over the world but of course many right here in my town sweet women so I realized that these as these Mm -hmm. you know men and women were coming at me saying horrible things about me What I realized is this, what if that's what makes them survive? What if they don't have another way? What if saying something awful about somebody is the only thing they have going for them and they have to do it? Wouldn't I rather it came at me than somebody else? Yes, I would. And then another one would come and it's weird. I felt a little grateful, like, well, good, bring it my way, I'm good, you know? And then the, another freedom was this, like, who am I to say they should have courage at the same time I found it? Who am I to to dictate their sixth and seventh yeah. step? It's not up to me. Just because I found a, a, a peace and courage doesn't mean they get to. And, of course, they have to attack me. If they don't attack me, it means they're going to have to change and look at decades of damage that they've done. Who, could, how, who am I to ask them to do that? My mother couldn't.
0: Yeah, what what, a, what an incredible frame of mind. And the fact that you have the tolerance of intolerance is, to me, that that is exceptional and really inspiring. The other thing that you just said about them doing that because they don't want to face the stuff that's really going on, my guess is there have probably been a few people over the years who were like that who did hit a turning point as a result of how you acted and people who finally came to terms of the fact of how intolerant and insensitive and whatever else they are it'd be nice to think that some of the men saw the the evil of their ways and uh, but wow that's a champion thing to do
1: thank you god was the warrior in that whole thing and i relied on the wisdom of yeah. others i i waited way too long to make a move cuz i cuz of my i was terrified and i waited too long.
0: So you've started these meetings 12 years later, you're still getting some of the blowback from years ago. But tell me about a couple of other things that have happened in the last several years that you can absolutely draw the direct connection between the work you're doing in AA and that good thing, or even that bad thing having happened, but you got through it.
1: What comes to mind is, um, so when Zoom hit, you know, and we all went into lockdown, I live two and a half hours from St. Louis and I have a friend there in the program. He tapes, you know, uh, tons of conferences Mm -hmm. and I've spoken for him. He he taped me a few times and we were friends. So Mm -hmm. the first week of lockdown, he sends me um, a text and he has a he's written out a, a Woodstock format. He says, hey, there's this format called Zoom and I have an idea. We can do a conference on Zoom. we're going to call it the Corona conference. And he says, will you take one of these steps? And I said, sure. He says, will you help me find the rest of the speakers? I said, sure. So that was the first Corona conference. And so we did six or seven during this time, multiple around the world conferences. And here I'm telling you, here is the magic math of the power of the universe, because I'm in this small town where you know I have my beautiful safe home group, but I take hits and that predator's still out there. I can't let him see my car. I didn't care so much. He keyed my other one, but I don't want this one keyed. So, you know, it's still an active thing happening. But I'm a member of the worldwide fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the worldwide fellowship. So I can go anywhere and be welcomed and people are happy to see me and and shoulder to shoulder and so if, if all that had to go down with anybody I was the perfect person for God to send in for that duty. Perfect person. Hmm. And I'm grateful for it. So grateful. But so during lockdown I have a, a close friend um who speaks a lot in a named Marty. And he's mm-hmm. super smart. And he made this step series based only out of the big book, of course, and the twelve oh twelve, um, mm-hmm. called, the, named after his home group called the Lions Step Series. Mm-hmm. And so me and 30 yeah. of my ladies in my line came on Zoom so Marty could take us through this long series of getting through the steps for, and also over 41 years, but when he took us through it mm-hmm. and one aspect that was amazing is it's the first time I ever put my fear inventory in columns. I've never, I put the grudge inventory in columns. I've never put my fear inventory mm-hmm. in columns. And it's beautiful because mm-hmm. it just makes it easy to see. Instead of just a list, afraid of snakes, afraid of heights, afraid of people's not liking me, you know, these things. So mm-hmm. all my sobriety, every fourth step I've ever done, I've, I've had one of the same fears. And that is that one day I'll be old and alone and poor and stuck in a nursing home. So, all these years, mm. I'd write it on my fear list, say it in five, turn it over in six and seven, mm. come back around, put it back yeah. on my fear list the next time. So, in this time, mm. I'm just even writing. Someday I'm going to be old and alone and poor. Before I'm even done writing out the fear, I realize that me in a nursing home someday may be the best service work I will ever do. And I swear to God, now I'm kind of excited to get there.
0: That's remarkable.
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Looking forward to going to a nursing home, are you?
1: Because <laughs> yeah. if I'm there, God's going to give me the tools. We'll be all
0: right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you can you know, start a group mm. there. And wow, that is really brilliant. I, I like that. And you got that from a fellow member mm-hmm. of the program. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I've, Now I've taken uh, three times now. I've taken a group through the steps that way. Just finished the last one, mm-hmm. I think, last week, actually. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the first time ever, too, because, you know, you don't make amends to yourself, like in the steps, you know. So I'd never put myself on my grudge list yet. Mm-hmm. Um. In the fourth step, it does say, page 66, and it's about the grudge list. It says, sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. I just never even considered mm-hmm. He said, put yourself on your grudge list. Yeah. And I always thought that was self-centered, because then you're not going to go to eight, you know, yeah. look in the mirror. I don't yeah. anyway. but. But wow, straight out of the big book. And I never even noticed it. What oh, my a realization. God, it was beautiful. And everyone who, who we've been taken through are like,
0: wow. So you continue to work the steps on a daily basis. You continue to bring the steps to other people. Started these great meetings with the book and on Zoom. Anything else you're do, that you're doing these days that kept you so delightfully engaged with AA?
1: Well, so, you know, we're opening back up. You know, life is a little bit and, you know, back and forth on that. And uh, so I'm getting to fly out to conferences now and um, get conferences. And that started, my first live one was last April. Then, you Mm -hmm. know, because they're backed up, you know, so 2020 was canceled, 2021 got pushed off. And then, so now, you know, everything's like backed up. So they're doing two years of conferences. So there's a lot, wow. you know, I mean, we all, everybody does that though. We're all like service work on Zoom and we're all like you look at the service work you do. You know, we're all finding the way yes. God wants to use us.
0: It really is so gratifying to know that we can touch other people's lives through a medium that most of us had never even considered before. I mean, we've always had the phone, we've always had meetings, but to think that this would be the way that we're touching other people's lives. And probably like you, I know a lot of people who have never gone to a live meeting. They've only gone to Zoom meetings. I know some people who were regulars at the live meetings that when when the pandemic came along because of their physical condition and their immunological systems could not go to meetings. To me, it's such a wonderful gift. The technology has really made a huge difference in people's lives. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to the next international. I was all signed up for Detroit. I had my room all set up in the headquarters hotel. I was, I was raring to go. And when that got canceled, I was, I was crestfallen. But Uh, I'm looking forward to it. The the conferences, though, are, I think, a neat way to get involved and stay engaged. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, lucky, man. Lucky. So lucky. Blessed.
0: Blessed, Blessed, right? Aren't we? Well, this has just been a beautiful opportunity to get to know a woman who heretofore I didn't know. And just to be able to spend an an hour and 15 minutes sharing your life with me, that's a real awesome. honor. And for you to trust me with the things that you've said today, it means the world to me, Paula. And uh, I would hope that this would be the beginning of a, of a nice friendship in Thank AA. You. I know that by the time this is out, it will touch other people's lives in a way that we may never know. And I've always said, if one person's life is changed by these podcasts, that's great. I want to thank you again for doing this, Paula. And, and uh, you're, you're a terrific person. I love you. And I hope that your 2022 goes really, really well for you. Yours
1: too, Howard. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks, Paula. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Paula P., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? We're on our way to a million podcast followers worldwide, and I appreciate your taking the time to listen. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa. Play AA Recovery Interviews podcast, or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.